Hello and welcome to Big Ideas. Geraldine Doog with you. This afternoon we continue with our 2003 Boyer Lecture Series presented by Owen Harries, part five this week. And we'll be bringing you a wonderful short story by prize-winning Guatemalan writer Arturo Arias. Today we also continue our focus on 20th century American compositions with music by George Crumb, Philip Glass and Henry Bird, otherwise known as Professor Longhair. But first, let me reintroduce you to Owen Harries, our 2003 Boyer Lecturer. Owen's a Senior Fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney. He lived in Washington DC for many years, where he was the Australian Ambassador to UNESCO, and was then Editor-in-Chief from 1985 to 2001 of the Washington-based foreign policy journal The National Interest. Prior to this, he held a number of senior positions in Canberra, including senior advisor to the former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser. Today's lecture, Challenges, is part five of our six-part 2003 Boyer series. This week, Owen Harries tries to peer into the future and to speculate on who might threaten who in the next little while and how and why. None of the results are entirely predictable, as you'll hear, but his most provocative crystal ball gaze pertains to an internal United States debate, almost a new civil war of ideas. Here's Owen Harries. Throughout history, hegemons have been challenged. What challenges is the United States likely to face in coming decades? By common consent, the two most likely contenders are China and a united Europe. Currently, each of these is in the middle of an extraordinarily bold and risky experiment in self-transformation. And whatever challenges eventuate from one or both will depend largely on how these experiments turn out. China is in the process of attempting to convert itself in an orderly fashion from the totalitarian state it was until a decade or two ago to a market economy integrated into the global system with whatever that entails in social and political terms. In Europe, an attempt is underway to change the whole political structure and fabric of a continent, its laws, its money, its institutions and customs, and to replace them with one uniform system. All this in a continent with a turbulent history of violent conflict and which lacks even a common language. The whole project is elite-driven, the work of technocrats and bureaucrats, with little democratic control or accountability and very limited popular support. In both cases, the risks involved are huge and the eventual outcome uncertain. The spectacular success of either or both would have major international consequences. But so too would their spectacular failure. China is still nominally a Marxist state and still genuinely authoritarian. It's not surprising then that of the two, it is China that the United States has so far been most concerned about as a potential rival and threat. An influential book that appeared in the late 1990s under the title of The Coming Conflict with China spelt it out. China, soon to be the globe's second most powerful nation, will be a predominating force as the world takes shape in the new millennium, and as such is bound to be 
no longer a strategic friend of the United States, but a long-term adversary. Note those words, and as such is bound to be. They assume a kind of iron logic of cause and effect in the international system. The number one power and the number two power must inevitably be strategic rivals. Often, the example of Germany's challenge to Britain a century ago is used to illustrate the point. But how much that depended on the logic of the system, and how much on the vanity and ambition of a foolish Kaiser, is very debatable. In any case, in this instance, it's not a conclusion based on empirical evidence concerning China's actual behaviour, for until now China has been singularly inactive and unambitious beyond its region. Its most conspicuous venture in this respect was a half-hearted and incompetent attempt to establish a presence in Africa, but that was more than three decades ago. Even within the region, its assertiveness in recent years has been modest and has manifested itself mainly with respect to uninhabited or sparsely inhabited islands in the East and South China Seas, whose ownership is in dispute. It stopped supporting insurrection movements in Southeast Asia a considerable time ago. Taiwan, of course, is a special case. From the Chinese point of view, it is a domestic issue, since the island is regarded as part of China. But on the evidence so far, Beijing is prepared to live with the status quo and leave the island to enjoy a de facto autonomy as long as Taipei and Washington don't force the issue of its ultimate legal status. It has only reacted forcefully, as in 1996, when they've given signs of wanting to do that. Currently, Taiwanese businesses have more than 60 billion American dollars invested in mainland China, and thousands of Taiwanese businessmen move back and forth to the mainland. China's military is large and growing but it is poorly equipped, poorly trained, poorly educated, lacking in logistic capacity and underfunded. We're talking about a country that still does not possess a single aircraft carrier or the power projection capacity to carry and sustain forces over water. Its military has to engage in business and smuggling to supplement its pay. To rectify all these weaknesses and to produce anything approximating the current sophistication and power of the American military would be a very long and expensive task. And in the meantime, of course, the US forces would have made further qualitative leaps. So, however successful it is economically, the chances of China being able to challenge the United States globally in military terms in the foreseeable future are remote. Within the region, things may be different. Indeed, it will be surprising if an economically very successful China will not become more assertive close to home. That is the way ascending powers, democratic as well as non-democratic, behave. They feel entitled to a sphere of influence, as a badge of great power status as well as for strategic reasons. If their claims and efforts become excessive, they have to be checked. If they're reasonably modest and restrained, it usually makes sense to cut them some slack. 
In the case of China, after a century and a half of humiliation and failure, the concern with status and national dignity is likely to be particularly strong as it gains stature, and attempts to deny it regional influence likely to be strongly resented. Within the region, which was once largely composed of vassal states of the Chinese Middle Kingdom, China's commitment and motivation are likely to be stronger than those of the United States. And as Vietnam demonstrated, motivation can go a long way towards compensating for inferiority in military equipment. It's also relevant that while the United States will possess the greater capacity to inflict pain, China, with its vast population and a regime with few humanitarian scruples, will possess the greater capacity to absorb pain. On the other hand, for the Chinese, there is the sobering awareness that if the United States were to withdraw from Asia, one thing that would certainly follow would be a rapid expansion in an already substantial Japanese defence budget and probably the acquisition of nuclear weapons. This, and the need to structure a better relationship with its rich and powerful neighbour, must figure prominently in Chinese calculations. Apart from a possible strategic challenge from China, there is the question of an economic challenge. A straight-line projection of the high growth rates of the last two decades would have China with a larger gross domestic product than the United States by the middle of this century. Even if that were to happen, China's per capita wealth would of course still be very modest, given its very large population. But it's unlikely to happen, for the country faces daunting, risk-laden problems. These include reform of the very extensive and very inefficient state-owned enterprises, reform of its financial sector, cutbacks in the size of the military to facilitate its modernization, and tackling pervasive corruption. Such reforms will involve, among other things, adding tens of millions to an unemployed population which is already over 100 million. Problems like these are likely to concentrate the attention of the government internally. They're also likely to cause it to place a high value on its economic relationship with the United States, its largest export market, as well as with the rest of the region. Both economic considerations and issues of prestige are likely to cause China to attach great importance to its membership of the World Trade Organization and its prospective membership of the G8 group, the ultimate badge of acceptance by its peers. Partly for these reasons, but also partly because they have a shared interest in combating Islamist terrorism, there have recently been signs of improvement in Sino-American relations. These include cooperation over the handling of the North Korea problem, the sharing of intelligence on terrorist activity, and Beijing's encouragement of Pakistan's cooperation with Washington. American assurances, both public and private, that it does not support unilateral Taiwanese moves towards independence, and more frequent meetings of leaders, including a Chinese presidential visit to the Bush Ranch in Texas. 
While all this is encouraging, I believe that it makes more sense to interpret it as one of many temporary shifts that will occur in a complicated relationship over the coming years, rather than as evidence of a permanent change. Relations between these two huge countries, each of which sees itself as a special case rather than a normal state, are bound to be difficult. It will require restraint, foresight and flexibility on both sides if they are to avoid becoming deadly rivals. Whether it turns out to be justified or mistaken, it's understandable why a successful ascendant China is seen as a potential challenger to American hegemony. Many will find it more difficult to see Europe in that light. Even after the friction of the last year or so, discord within the West will seem unnatural and temporary. After all, for the last half-century, we've been accustomed to think of the West as one strategic entity. And apart from that, the countries on both sides of the North Atlantic share vast communalities, a common history, culture, political values and institutions. This common heritage, the glory that was Greece, the grandeur that was Rome, Christianity, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the American, French and Industrial Revolutions, representative democracy, the rule of law, the market economy. All this surely gives Western political unity a firm basis. Well, no, it does not. A common civilization is one thing. Political and geopolitical unity is another. For most of their existence, relations among Western countries have been marked by division, rivalry and particularly bloody wars, culminating in the two world wars of the first half of this century, which have been aptly described as Western civil wars. The Western alliance of the last half century was the exception, not the rule, the product of a shared sense of great danger, a mutual fear, not of civilizational affinities. During the Cold War, the Western Alliance was essential for Europeans scared stiff of a menacing Soviet Union. But it also meant subordination to American leadership. Dependence breeds resentment and a strong desire to reassert one's independence. That desire was strongly in evidence in a Gaullist France even during the Cold War. When that struggle ended, it became widespread. When fighting broke out in Yugoslavia in the summer of 1991, for example, the immediate reaction of Jacques Delors, then President of the European Commission, was we do not interfere in American affairs. We hope they will have enough respect not to interfere in ours. A few years later, of course, after they'd failed to deal with the problem, Europeans were pleading with Washington to intervene in the Balkans. As well as resentment, there is a different mind-cast. For me, one incident that happened 20 years ago, when I was representing Australia at UNESCO in Paris, was illuminating in that respect. In a conference dominated by third world countries and the Soviet bloc, the United States delegation fought hard to save one of the few resolutions 
that asserted liberal and democratic values. Finally, it was forced to yield. But as it did so, it vented its feelings and complained bitterly. Immediately afterwards, a number of European delegates gathered in the lobby to discuss what had happened, and after a while, one of them summed up the general feeling of the group with an exasperated, isn't it a pity that the United States can't learn to lose gracefully? I walked away reflecting on the sporting maxim, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. And also, how fortunate Europe had been that America had not been a good loser in a Cold War. Thinking about it afterwards, I realised that the recent history of European countries was, essentially, one of losing. Nearly all of them had been defeated and occupied in World War II. After that war, they'd lost control over their continent, whose fate was in the hands of the two outside superpowers. They'd lost the military dominance that they had previously enjoyed. They'd lost their overseas empires. Having become losers, Europeans reacted in one of two ways. Some did what the weak have always done in international affairs. They repudiated and condemned power politics and became enthusiasts for law, morality, international institutions and norms. All intended to curb the power of the great. Others, notably the French, in whom the instincts of a great power still persisted, set about trying to create a single European entity, one of whose primary functions in French eyes was to act as a counterweight to the United States. After half a century of evolution, that entity is now in the process of negotiating a draft constitution, which, if accepted, will transform it into the United States of Europe, whose laws will have primacy over those of its 25 members and which will have the character of a single state. The constitution was drawn up under the supervision of the former French president, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. He has indicated the raison d'etre of the US of E by explaining that it will be respected and listened to as a political power that will speak as an equal with the largest powers on the planet. What sort of challenge to the United States would a United States of Europe represent? Militarily, it would represent no challenge. The Europeans have neither the will nor the coordination to compete seriously in that sphere, and that is unlikely to change. Economically, Europe, with a gross domestic product of 9 trillion, is a much closer match to the United States, with 10 trillion. But the two economies are tightly integrated and interdependent, which means that despite constant skirmishing and friction, it will be difficult for one to take serious punitive measures against the other without inflicting serious damage on itself. What about political and so-called soft power? This is supposed to be one of the United States' strong suits. But some are now arguing that there may be a case for a re-evaluation on that score. For the first time since the end of World War II, the United States found itself unable to put together a credible international coalition 
to support a major initiative. Nor, despite a maximum effort, was it able to produce anything close to a simple majority on the Security Council earlier this year. Two of its principal European allies, France and Germany, successfully thwarted it on both counts and took the lead in expressing widespread international opposition to American policy and in asserting the importance of international law and norms of behaviour and the legitimising role of the United Nations. There is considerable irony in all this. The United States, which sees it as its mission to promote democracy in the world, is being opposed by some of the world's principal democracies. And their way of opposing it is by appealing to the nearest thing that exists in international affairs to a rule of law. With war between major powers ruled out in a nuclear age, and with the United States possessing immense military superiority, they are attempting to substitute a soft political and diplomatic balancing of the hegemon for the old military balancing. As we've just witnessed in the lead-up to and aftermath of the Iraq war, the UN provides an effective forum for this kind of exercise. With a moral authority that, rightly or wrongly, many credited with, a quasi-democratic, quasi-legal form of power politics in disguise can be used to balance and curb the United States. We're likely to see much more of the same. It will work as long as, and to the extent that, the United States continues to attach importance to having its actions authorised by the United Nations. There is one other important dimension of the US-European relationship, the demographic dimension. According to UN predictions, which have been pretty accurate in the past, the population of the world will increase by just over 3 billion in the 50-year period from 2000 to 2050. That is roughly by 50%. But during that time, the population of the member states of the European Union will drop by 6% if present demographic trends continue. And the drop in some large countries, Germany, Italy, Spain, will be considerably greater than that. At the same time as population is declining, life expectancy is rising, which means a rapidly ageing population. By the year 2050, on present demographic trends, there will be 75 pensioners for every 100 workers in Europe. That in turn means a number of things. First, either the present generous pensions for the aged will have to be cut very significantly, or the taxes of wage earners, already high, will have to increase very significantly, or some combination of the two will have to take place. Second, there will therefore be a generational political struggle for resources, with the elderly having the advantage of numbers. Third, if the European Union is reluctant to spend money on defence now, it's likely to become even more reluctant with an ageing population and higher pension burdens. Fourth and last, to augment its declining workforce, Europe is likely to take in migrants in large numbers and most of them are likely to come from North Africa. 
There are already something like 15 million Muslims in the European Union. Given that their birth rate is three times higher than the non-Muslim ones and that the level of immigration is likely to increase, it's likely that that number will double in the next 15 years. Increasingly, then, there is a prospect that Europe's population will consist of comparatively well-to-do elderly Christians and poor young Muslims. Quite soon, there will be an increasingly large block of Muslim voters who will influence European attitudes on a range of issues, especially ones concerning the Middle East. The demographic trends in the United States are very different. America's fertility rate is rising. Its immigration rate is much higher than that of Europe. The American population is soon going to get younger, not older, thanks largely to the very high fertility rates of Latinos. The demographic prospects for the two sectors of the West are therefore very different. And this is likely to have geopolitical implications over time. In particular, as Europe's Muslim population increases, while America's Latin American and Asian components increase, what the two parts of the West have in common, the personal and political ties, the shared values and attitudes which characterize what we mean by the West, is likely to shrink and weaken. China, Europe, is there another potential threat to American hegemony? Well, some would argue that the most serious threat of all comes from America itself. In a recent issue of the Washington magazine I used to edit, The National Interest, an article by two reputable people argues that the decline and fall of America's undeclared empire will be due not to terrorists at our gates, nor to the rogue regimes that sponsor them, but to a fiscal crisis. A fiscal crisis due to a combination of the coming impact of the baby boomers on the welfare system and of the fiscal irresponsibility of the federal government. In short, they conclude, the colossus that currently bestrides the world has feet of clay. I'm not competent to judge whether they're right or wrong about that, but there are other reasons for believing that forces within the United States may exert themselves increasingly against the course that is now being followed. While some Americans have always believed that the United States should crusade for democracy abroad, others have strongly resisted that and insisted that she should rest content with providing an example and hopefully an inspiration. As John Quincy Adams, who was to become the sixth president of the United States, put it, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. And he went on to warn that if she proceeded otherwise, she might become the dictatress of the world, but she would no longer be the ruler of her own spirit. More recently, a decade ago, Jean Kirkpatrick, Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the UN, and herself a feisty and dedicated cold warrior, expressed these views about the new era. 
the United States performed heroically in a time when heroism was required, altruistically during the long years when freedom was endangered. The time when America should bear such unusual burdens is past. With a return to normal times, we can again become a normal nation and take care of pressing problems of education, family, industry and technology. We can be an independent nation in a world of independent nations. It's time to give up the dubious benefits of superpower status and become again an open American republic. The belief in American exceptionalism that the United States is different from and superior to other states, not only in degree but in kind, is an important part of the American makeup. It underpins its belief in itself as a benign hegemon, a provider of public goods to the international community, the keeper of order and stability, the promoter of freedom, an unthreatening presence to all except those who are evil. Many Americans find it hard to understand why much of the world, and especially Western democracies, do not share that belief. But they, more than anyone, should understand why other states cannot bet their future on the virtue, restraint and good intentions of the very strong. For the men who created the United States, its founding fathers and the authors of its constitution, were not prepared to trust the benign intentions of even their democratically elected fellow countrymen. That is why they put their faith in a system of checks and balances and the separation of powers as the defining characteristic of their constitution, so that each instrument of government could curb and restrain the others. It is that same distrust that underpins the concept of balance of power in international politics. The really interesting and important debate about the foreign policy of the United States is not between anti-Americans and pro-Americans. It's between two different American traditions concerning how the United States can best promote its interests, values and ideals. And it remains an open question how much the rest of us outside the US will really influence the course of that particular debate. Maybe we'll just watch. Owen Harries with his fifth lecture, Challenges, in ABC Radio National's six-part 2003 Boyer Lecture Series. And you can find out more about this year's Boyers by going to abc.net.au slash rn. Next week is the final part of The Boyers, where Owen Harris analyses the relationship between Australia and the US. He's a senior fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney, by the way. This is ABC Radio National, and you're listening to Big Ideas with Geraldine Duke. <laughs>